0: Hello, and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Connor. Thank you very much for listening, as always. Previously in our series on Girolamo Savonarola, we continued to cover Savonarola's ongoing dispute with Pope Alexander VII. In his latest effort to silence the renegade preacher, the Pope lent his clandestine support to the Medici family in their re- attempts to retake Florence for themselves. When word of this conspiracy reached Savonarola, he took to the pulpit and incited the citizens of the city to action to defend the Republic, eventually prompting the Medici to lose heart and give up. This forced the Pope to look into other courses of action to deal with Savonarola. He attempted to ban him from preaching publicly, a ban which lasted only for a couple of months, as at this time the Pope was under immense pressure from the King of France to cease his intervention in Florentine affairs. This tactic having failed, The Pope then launched an investigation into Savonarola's recent conduct, searching for evidence of heresy. These inquisitors would struggle to find any such evidence. Meanwhile, Savonarola used his public platform to launch a new moral crusade against the excesses of Florence's annual Carnival celebration. These were annual festivities set in the week before Lent, wherein the citizens of Florence engaged in debauchery of all sorts. This, along with the festival's pagan origins and its close association with the previous Medici regime, led Savonarola to regard the whole thing as an affront. In an effort to stifle this behavior, Savonarola recruited a legion of teenage boys to roam the streets, collecting alms, chanting hymns, and actively discouraging vice of all kinds. 1496 was a rather dark year for Florence. Inclement weather raised the specter of famine, while an influx of refugees into the city led to a moderate outbreak of plague. The Republic's geopolitical situation was looking equally as bleak. Florence's backing of the French had come at the cost of alienating its Italian neighbors, and with the French withdrawal the previous year, Florence was left alone without any allies on the Italian peninsula. A protracted war to reclaim the city of Pisa, which had thrown off the Florentine yoke in the wake of the French invasion, had been going on for about a year with little success. This was partially because the Pisans were receiving aid from Florence's rivals, the Duchy of Milan and the Republic of Venice. Midway through the year, worse news arrived the Holy Roman Emperor, Maximilian I, was also planning to intervene on Peace's behalf. A brief naval battle between the French and the Venetians off the coast of Livorno raised Florentine hopes that a second French intervention was imminent, but these hopes were dashed when news reached them of the death of Charles VIII's infant son, also named Charles. The king was so distraught at the death of the prince that he suspended all his plans for a second Italian campaign. Against this backdrop of famine, pestilence, and war, some in Florence began to question Savonarola's authority. After all, he had claimed not even one year prior that the Virgin Mary, Mother of Christ, had spoken to him directly, and claimed that the city of Florence would soon become more glorious, powerful, and wealthy than it had been in its entire history. The current course of events, however, seemed to suggest that this would not be the case. In response, Savonarola claimed that Florence was not yet worthy of such good fortune, and it would not be deemed so, until such a time when the city had been fully purged of all vice. In order to effect this purge, Savonarola sought to utilize the upcoming Carnival season of 1497 fully to his advantage. As I mentioned previously, in the days of yore, and especially in the days of the Medici, among other sinful activities, Carnival had been characterized by unrestrained feasting and drinking, as well as singing and lascivious dancing. Under other circumstances, Carnival would have presented the people of Florence with an opportunity to forget their day-to-day troubles and throw social inhibitions to the wind. But, so long as Savonarola had anything to say about it, Carnival would be transformed into a sober and dignified ceremony, which would be far more appropriate as a prelude to the season of Lent. Of course, the city's recent misfortunes had hardly provided the people cause for celebration. The pervading atmosphere of doom and gloom was captured by Savonarola's friend, the poet Girolamo Beneventi. In a hymn, he composed for the occasion, quote, "...now that you have elected us, Lord Jesus, through grace, inflame our hearts with your love. My Lord, summon up your might, and come show yourself as God. Lord, why are we suffering? Why do you not bind up that and muzzle that insane mob troubling the well-being of the city of the flower?" End quote. When the carnival season of 1497 came around, Events proceeded in much the same fashion as they had the year prior, with Savonarola's boys, clad entirely in white, roving the streets singing hymns, inviting their fellow citizens to prayer, and asking for alms. Only this time it wouldn't be accurate to characterize their activity as asking for alms. This time, their collection efforts took on a more insistent tone, as they sought not only to collect money for the poor, but rather they sought to collect items of a different character and for a rather different purpose. Savonarola had instructed his boys to go around and confiscate any items which he characterized as vanities. As we have seen previously, this included not only women's veil holders, but other women's beauty items as well, such as perfumes, diadems, makeup cases, jewelry, wigs, mirrors, and ornate dresses. But the types of things that were categorized as vanities went far beyond this aforementioned category. It included such things as gambling paraphernalia, dice, playing cards, gaming tables, even chess sets. Indeed, anything that brought pleasure in the slightest was considered a distraction from pure Christian life, and therefore was targeted for confiscation. Musical instruments such as harps, lutes, zithers, dulcimers, pipes, drums, cymbals, etc. Paintings, sculptures, and tapestries depicting secular subjects were targeted as well especially those depicting figures from Greco-Roman mythology. Even religious art was considered fair game, so long as it contained graphic nudity or any other suggestive themes. Nor was Savonarola above suppressing the written word. Books by authors, both ancient and modern, were confiscated, such as titles by esteemed authors such as Boccaccio, Dante, Petrarch, and even Savonarola's friend, the late Poliziano. No doubt many wondered as to what was to be done with this vast collection of items. As it would turn out, what Savonarola had in mind was far more radical and far more spectacular than what people had likely imagined. He was preparing to burn them all in a public display known to history as the Bonfire of the Vanities. Contrary to popular belief, Savonarola did not invent this concept of a Bonfire of the Vanities. In fact, the practice had been introduced to Florence some 75 years prior by St. Bernardino of Siena. In the 1480s, another St. Bernardino, Bernardino of Feltre, had done the same thing. But while Savonarola's actions here were not entirely unheard of, he would break with precedent in one regard. While the Saints Bernardino had staged their bonfires in front of churches, Savonarola would do so right in the center of the Piazza della Signoria, the intention being to emphasize the connection between religious piety and virtuous government. In the piazza's courtyard, a massive pyramid was constructed that was said to have been 60 feet tall and 240 feet wide. It had eight sides and seven tiers, one representing each of the seven deadly sins. Within the pyramid was placed a massive amount of incendiary material, including some gunpowder, which was intended to produce pyrotechnic effects and add to the spectacular nature of the entire affair. Atop the pyramid was placed an effigy of the devil, intended to represent all the evils of Carnival traditions of years past. One eyewitness reported, quote, All these things were so varied and unusual so as to appear delectable to the eye. No wonder because they included sculptures of great value, paintings of marvelous beauty, ivory chessmen worth forty ducats apiece, and others of porphyry and alabaster worth even more. Overall, was an effigy of Carnival so monstrous and deformed so as not to be imagined. February 7th, the day of Carnival, quickly arrived. That morning, a mass was held in the Cathedral of Santa Maria del Fiore, which was attended by thousands of people. From the cathedral, there was a procession to the Piazza della Signoria, where the unlit bonfire awaited. Leading the parade were four of Savonarola's boys, bearing on their shoulders a magnificent statue of the baby Jesus, sculpted by Donatello. Following them were hundreds of more of the friar's boys, and a significant number of other lay people, all of whom sang hymns as they went along. Arriving at last at the Piazza della Signoria, the spectators flooded into the courtyard and arranged themselves along the walls at a safe distance. Then the signal was given, and four torchbearers set the massive pile alight. Savonarola biographer Pasquale Villari painted quite the vivid portrait of the ensuing scene. Quote, "...smoke and flames instantly burst forth, the bells of the palace pealed forth, and the multitude vented their joy in a mighty shout, as though the archenemy of mankind had been finally vanquished." End quote. The 1497 Bonfire of the Vanities remains, to this day, Girolamo Savonarola's singular, most spectacular achievement, and it can be considered to represent the zenith of his success. After all, when Savonarola had entered Florence for the first time, back in 1490, he had found it to be the most worldly city of his age, representing all that he despised about Renaissance Italian society. To have convinced the people of this city, the very birthplace of the Renaissance, to give over their most prized possessions to be destroyed in the name of the Lord, was certainly no small feat. It was the culmination of all of Savonarola's efforts at moral reform to date. Certainly, the Bonfire of the Vanities is the event most closely associated with his name in the modern day. Of course, this event continues to attract controversy just as it did at the time, with historians debating among themselves as to the morality of Savonarola's actions. The most common portrayal of Savonarola in the current day is that of an overzealous Puritan who sought to turn back the tides of Renaissance progress in favor of the barbaric Middle Ages. There is also some debate as to the value of what was destroyed in the fire. Contemporaries reported that a Venetian merchant who was passing through town offered Savonarola 22,000 ducats for the entire pile. This, as historian Paul Strathern points out, was not an insignificant sum, especially in those days of acute deprivation and economic decline. He claims that at the time, one would have been able to purchase a decent-sized palazzo for only one-tenth of that amount. But Savonarola turned him down nonetheless. The modern value of the items destroyed in the Bonfire of the Vanities is inestimable, not only in a monetary sense, but more abstractly as well. Many historians lament the loss of valuable manuscripts and artworks which were presumed to have been destroyed. Particularly, many of the paintings of Sandro Botticelli were lost to the flames. These were given over willingly by the artist himself, remarkably. Botticelli, in his later years, had become an ardent follower of Savonarola. Much like Pico della Mirandola, he rejected a large portion of his prior body of work, which he now regarded to be blasphemous. Most famous for paintings depicting scenes from Greco-Roman mythology, such as the famous Birth of Venus, Botticelli had now resigned himself to painting mainly biblical subjects it is more than likely that he gave Savonarola's boys paintings of the former variety for destruction. Two weeks after this subverted Carnival celebration occurred, a piece of news arrived from Rome that was absolutely devastating to Savonarola. King Charles VIII had signed a treaty with the Holy League. Now, Florence was well and truly abandoned to the mercies of its fellow Italian states, who were essentially given a free hand to antagonize Florence as much as they wanted without fear of French intervention. Savonarola's vaunted new Cyrus had turned out to be an utter failure. His credibility suffered as a result of this development, something his opponents were quick to seize on. Savonarola made no effort to hide his disappointment with the king, denouncing him as stupid and idle, and predicting that just as God had punished him for failing in his duty with the death of his infant son, as a result of this latest development, God would strike down the king himself. Of course, Savonarola was going out on a bit of a limb here, at the time, the king was only 26 years of age, and though he had a number of congenital health problems as a result of his inbred lineage, there was absolutely nothing to suggest that he would die any time soon. As it would turn out, however, against all odds, Savonarole's prediction would come true in about a year's time. In the afternoon of April 7th, 1498, Charles VIII was at the royal residence at the Chateau d'Amboise in central France. As he walked into a tennis court to play a quick match, he accidentally struck his head on the door's lintel. He fell into a coma and died some nine hours later. Had Savonarola not been otherwise preoccupied at the time, he surely would have publicly claimed that this was divine justice at work. At this time, Savonarola's ongoing dispute with the Vatican had reached a critical juncture. With this latest geopolitical development, Savonarola seems to have become convinced that only one of two different paths lay open to him still. He would either succeed in dismantling the corrupt church hierarchy and bringing about the reforms that he had so often spoken of, or he would fail utterly in this effort and almost certainly face a martyr's death. Either way, Savonarola would have to take on the full might of the Roman Catholic Church, which itself was quite the daunting prospect. With this idea firmly rooted in the back of his mind, Savonarola used the platform provided for him by his yearly Lenten sermons, for the year 1497, to step up his rhetoric against the corrupted church in Rome. The theme for these sermons was the biblical book of Ezekiel, specifically chapter 33, verse 29, quote, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will stretch out my hands against mine enemies, and I will execute great vengeance upon them with furious rebukes, and they shall know that my name is the Lord when I shall lay my vengeance upon them, End quote. This passage set the tone for the rest of his sermon, quote, The earth teems with bloodshed, yet the priests take no heed. Rather, by their evil example, they bring spiritual death upon all. They have withdrawn from God, and their piety consists in spending their nights with harlots, and their days chattering in choirs. The altar is made into little more than a place of traffic for the clergy. They say that God has no care of the world, that all comes by chance, nor did they believe that Christ is present in the sacrament. Come here, thou ribald church, the Lord has said. I gave thee beautiful vestments, but you have made idols of them. You have dedicated the sacred vessels to vainglory, the sacraments to simony. Thou hast become a shameless harlot in thy lusts. Thou art lower than a beast. Thou art a monster of abomination. Once anointed priests called their sons nephews, but now they no longer speak of nephews, but always and everywhere of their sons. Meanwhile, the situation in Florence was worsening by the day. Landucci's diary at this time is full of bleak reports of people dropping dead of starvation in the streets. Amidst such events, Savonarola drew in his largest congregations to date, with Landucci reporting that 15,000 attended his sermons on a daily basis. If he is to be believed, this number constitutes about half the able-bodied population of the city at that time. And yet, despite his immense popularity, his critics were more vociferous than ever. Among the friars' more vocal opponents were other clergymen, specifically those belonging to the Augustinian and Franciscan orders, who denounced Savonarola as a false prophet. A dispatch from a Ferraris diplomat reflected the tense atmosphere which prevailed in the city at this time, "...Florence is more divided than ever before, and all are apprehensive that there will soon be an outbreak of civil violence. If this does happen, it will be very dangerous for the city. Savonarola is doing his best to forestall this..." but his enemies had become widespread and determined, particularly after the news of the blessed truce between France and the Holy League." Quote. An episode which demonstrates the anxiety of this particular moment occurred on May 4th, Ascension Day. As Savonarola preached at the Santa Maria del Fiore, about two-thirds of the way through the sermon there was suddenly a series of loud noises towards the back of the cathedral. A pandemonium ensued as those in attendance immediately assumed that people had come to attack Savonarola as he preached. Many ran for the exits while others, who were secretly armed, brandished their blades and made a perimeter around the friar. In the confusion, a member of the Signoria was struck by one of Savonarola's defenders. As it would turn out, there was no real danger. More than likely what had happened is that Savonarola and his followers had fallen victim to a practical joke. On April 25th, Landucci recorded in his diary, quote, We have heard that Piero de' Medici was at Siena with a large body of soldiers, end quote. It had been... Over two years since Piero de' Medici had been overthrown and ejected from the city that it was his birthright. It had been only about six months since his last ill-fated attempt to retake the city for the House of Medici. Ever since then, he had been living in Rome as a guest of the Pope. The constant stream of news arriving in the city regarding Florence's recent string of misfortunes was, if not pleasing to Piero, at the very least intriguing. He began to concoct a new scheme to take advantage of the deteriorating political situation in Florence in order to stage his return. But this time, instead of leading an army of mercenaries in an attempt to retake the city by force, this time he would use more subtle methods. When he arrived at the gates of the city with several wagons full of grain, the starving inhabitants of Florence would surely welcome him back into their city with open arms, or so he thought. By the time he was finally able to put this plan into action, relief supplies had been arriving to Florence daily from the seaport of Livorno, and while these supplies did not solve the crisis entirely, it did make the people of Florence more resistant to Piero's attempt at bribery. As politically divided as the city was at the time, as it would turn out, still no one yearned for the return of the Medici. Far from flinging the gates open for Piero, it was ensured that they remained bolted shut and heavily guarded. What few pieces of artillery the city was able to muster were placed along the ramparts. And so it was on the evening of April 28th, Linducci reported, quote, At about 5 p.m., Piero turned back and went away, seeing that he had no supporters in Florence. It was considered a most foolish thing for him to have put himself in danger, for, if we had wished, we very well could have captured him. If the alarm bell had been rung, he would surely have been immediately surrounded. End quote. With his latest scheme having once again been utterly foiled, Piero ignominiously slunk back to Siena and thence to Rome. Since this is the last time we will have cause to mention Piero the Unfortunate or his family in the course of this narrative, I feel it would be appropriate to give a brief postscript regarding his fate and the fate of the House of Medici more generally. Back in Rome, Piero abandoned himself to a lifestyle of immorality and excessive self-indulgence funded almost entirely by the last of the riches that he and his brother Giovanni had managed to smuggle out of the city two years prior. An account of his life in exile, written by a personal friend of his, tells us that, quote, "...he abandoned himself to a licentious and most scandalous life. He would rise from his bed late in the afternoon for dinner, sending down to the kitchen to see if they had any particular dish which took his fancy. If not, then he would leave for the San Servino, where every day a sumptuous banquet was served." and it was here that he would spend most of his time. When he had finished his meal, it was his custom to retire to a private room with a courtesan until it was time for his evening meal. Or sometimes he would stay there even later, then heading out into the streets of Rome with a group of dim-witted and loose-living companions. After carousing the night away, he would return to his wife around dawn. In this way, he dissipated his time and energy in gluttony, gambling, lewdness, and all kinds of unnatural vices." Throughout all of this, Piero never seems to have lost his inflated sense of entitlement that he had developed after spending most of his life as the heir apparent to the Medici family fortune. A further quote from the aforementioned source tells us, quote, He expected all whom he came in contact with to be subservient to him and to obey his every bullying whim. He showed no gratitude nor mercy to those who served him. No matter how faithful or devoted his companions, he was liable to turn on them at will and in the most savage fashion. End quote to his credit, it would seem that he never gave up his ambitions to reclaim his birthright, regardless of how many of his schemes were foiled. When, in 1499, the successor of Charles VIII, King Louis XII of France, invaded Italy once again, Piero threw in his lot with the French in the hopes that they might restore him to his rightful place as ruler of Florence. Piero accompanied the French army as they campaigned across the peninsula. On December 29, 1503, the French fought a battle against the Spanish and their Italian allies near the Garigliano River. The French forces were defeated, and in the chaos of the ensuing retreat, Piero fell into the river and there drowned, and in so doing truly earned his sobriquet of the unfortunate. With Piero's death, leadership of the family fell to his brother, Cardinal Giovanni de' Medici. Giovanni was able to succeed where his elder brother had failed. Successfully managing to play the French and Spanish off against one another, Giovanni, with the help of the Spanish army, captured Florence in fifteen twelve deposed the current leader of the city, a man named Piero Soderini, and installed his younger brother, Giuliano de Medici, in his place. Giovanni de Medici would be elected Pope the following year, and he took the papal name Leo X. He was sitting on the chair of St Peter when a certain disgruntled priest named Martin Luther published his ninety five Theses, challenging the authority of the Catholic Church and thereby starting the Protestant Reformation. In a curious twist of fate, Luther was, it would turn out, an admirer of Savonarola, considering him to be an inspiration, but more on that particular thing later. Anyway, as for Florence, Medici rule there would continue until it was overthrown once more in 1527. The Republic would once again change its allegiance back to the French, only to be recaptured by the Medici yet again with the help of the Spanish. On the conclusion of the Siege of Florence in 1530, Holy Roman Emperor Charles V and Pope Clement VII, who himself was also a member of the Medici family, not only saw to it that the Medici rule was restored, but that their power would be ensured by hereditary right. The Duchy of Florence was established, thereby fulfilling Lorenzo the Magnificent's most dearly held ambition to turn the Medici family into a royal house. Anyway, I'm getting way ahead of myself, and we should return back to our main narrative. Piero de' Medici's most recent failure in 1497 once again prompted Alexander VII to take matters into his own hands. Previously, he believed that his Savonarola problem could be done away with once Piero had retaken Florence, but that was not meant to be. Now his hand had been forced, and on May 13, 1497, the Pope affixed his signature to a brief of excommunication. In this letter, the Pope complained about a, quote, "...certain Girolamo Savonarola of the order of preachers and at present the vicar of San Marco in Florence." End quote. The brief laid out all of the Pope's grievances with the renegade preacher. He continued to preach his pernicious dogma to the good people of Florence. He brazenly rejected the Pope's summons to Rome, disregarded the papal interdict preventing him from preaching and had generally refused to properly submit himself to the spiritual and temporal authority of the Roman Catholic Church. For these reasons, and on suspicion of heresy, Savonarola was thereby excommunicated. Additionally, as the letter concluded, anyone who attended his sermons or even spoke with him publicly was also liable to be excommunicated. I believe that this would be an opportune time to explain exactly what excommunication means in this context. The root word of the term excommunication is communion. Therefore, excommunication, definitionally, means exclusion from communion, the most important sacrament in the Christian faith. Contrary to popular belief, excommunication is not the same as an outright expulsion from the church, although in practice this is what effectively it results in. Excommunicated persons are forbidden from receiving any of the sacraments, And, if the excommunicated individual is a member of the clergy, they are also forbidden to administer the sacraments. Those who are excommunicated are essentially outcast from the Christian community because, as Alexander VII's letter stated, any who associated with an excommunicated individual was liable to be excommunicated themselves. As the most serious punishment that the Church can inflict, excommunications have been somewhat rare throughout history, and were primarily reserved for heretics, schismatics, and the like. That being said, however, some popes were liable to abuse this power and pass sentences of excommunication on their political enemies, as was the case with Savonarola here. Anyway, with that digression out of the way, let's continue. The pope ran into unexpected difficulties when he moved to enforce the Order of Excommunication. It was not enough for the Pope to have written and signed the document, but it had to be delivered in Florence and read aloud in public for it to take effect. Alexander VII trusted this important task to one Gian Vittorio da Camerino, a renowned theological scholar. For some unexplained reason, the Pope and his advisors had failed to take into account the fact that da Camerino had been expelled from Florence two months prior after giving an inflammatory speech denouncing Savonarola, and he was forbidden from entering the city on pain of death. His status as the Pope's emissary would not necessarily grant him any diplomatic immunity. As a result, this mission, which should have been completed in a matter of days, instead took nearly a month, as de Camerino fumbled around searching for ways to circumvent his banishment from the city. Eventually, he decided to entrust this mission to an anonymous courier, giving him five copies of the letter to be distributed to five different churches within the city. Finally, on June 18th, the order of excommunication was pronounced publicly in these aforementioned churches. As was typically done in such events, the reading of the papal writ was accompanied by a solemn tolling of church bells and a further pronouncement quote, We judge him damned, with the devil and his angels, to the eternal fires of hell. Savonarola's enemies no doubt read this with no small degree of self satisfaction. The writ of excommunication was heralded as the end of Savonarola's reign. Reacting to this news, many people took to the streets and proceeded to engage in the sort of debauched activities that Savonarola had worked so hard to curb. People danced and sang humorous ballads ridiculing Savonarola and his followers. Practically overnight, prostitutes began to reappear in the city, and the taverns, formerly compelled to close at dusk, were packed throughout the night. By this point, the Signoria consisted primarily of men with Arabiati sympathies, and for their part they welcomed such developments more or less openly. They allowed the people to partake in such activities, despite having spent the last two years actively seeking to discourage them at Savonarola's behest. On June 11th, a racehorse known as a Palio was held in the city. Although the Palio in Florence was done in honor of St. Barbara, Savonarola had disdained to allow it to be held for the past two years on account of the gambling that typically accompanied it. This year, however, the Signoria not only allowed the race to occur but promoted it. Landucci records one member as saying, quote, Let us cheer up the people a little. Shall we all behave like monks? End quote. The Signoria also seized upon Savonarola's excommunication to once again ban him from preaching in public. He was compelled to remain within the confines of San Marco, while his opponents jeered at him and threw objects at him from the outside. All the while, the Signoria turned a blind eye to this behavior. While Savonarola's excommunication had come as quite a shock to many, Savonarola himself had been anticipating such an action for quite some time now. He replied quite swiftly, publishing his response in the form of an open letter entitled, quote, An open letter to all Christians and beloved of God, against recently issued surreptitious excommunication, quote. Rather conscientiously, Savonarola had written this letter in Italian rather than Latin, so that it could be read by the widest possible audience. In his letter, Savonarola made it known that he had absolutely no intention of accepting this excommunication, premised as it was on false information. Nor should the people of Florence accept it either, because he claimed it went against God's will. The tone was at once indignant and defiantly optimistic, quote, God will vouchsafe us from all danger and grant us a great victory. End quote. Soon after, he published a second letter, this one being written in Latin and intended for a more scholastic audience. Here, Savonarola brought the full force of his massive intellect to bear against his enemies in Rome. As he had correctly noted, he had been excommunicated only on mere suspicion of heresy, he had not been found guilty of anything. In fact, there hadn't even been a trial, nor were there any charges formally brought against him, nor was there any evidence. This, Savonarola claimed, was a miscarriage of justice, and he felt that he was under no obligation to abide by it. He even cited precedents in the history of the Church, specifically the words of Pope Martin V, who had pronounced that Christians were under no moral obligation to disavow anyone who had been excommunicated. Given this, Savonarola insisted on continuing to preach, and on June 19th, he took to the pulpit again in open defiance of the Pope's orders. Apparently, the threat of excommunication by proxy was not sufficient enough to scare off a great many people from attending this sermon. As author Don Weinstein posited in his biography of Savonarola, the seemingly inexplicable confidence and persistence with which he continued to defy Rome stemmed from his belief that his excommunication was a necessary development in order to fulfill his vision of the future. Indeed, a series of his letters written at this time reflect these sentiments. For instance, a letter written to Giovanna Carafa, the wife of the late Pico della Mirandola's nephew Gianfrancesco, Savonarola wrote, quote, Magnificent and most beloved lady in Christ Jesus, I took comfort from your last letter, thinking of your good mind and ready willingness to live righteously and persevere in this, and even of your healthy and firm faith, which is not founded on human reason or in things that can be seen, but is instead a gift from God, because it does not fail in times of tribulation or persecution, which we constantly have. At present, we have remarkable examples of this constantly in front of our eyes in this city, both among the laity and the clergy. One cannot describe with what joy believers live amidst these tribulations. Another letter written to Ercole d'Este, the duke of his native Ferrara, reads in part, Quote, our affairs are moving along in the proper order. These are God's matters, not ours, and God's affairs verify themselves in increased tribulation. These tribulations are lighter to us, because we have foreseen them and announced their coming for many years now. Our persecutions do not put me off, nor do they sadden my spirit, because I know they are necessary and will lead to a good end. end quote. From about July 1497 to February 1498, Savonarola dutifully observed the prohibition on his preaching and passed his days in quiet seclusion in his cell at San Marco. It was during this eight-month period that Savonarola set to work writing two very important treatises, entitled The Triumph of the Cross and Treatise on the Government and City of Florence. These were essentially the final summation of all his beliefs on religion and politics, respectively. The Triumph of the Cross was written first, and was more than likely an attempt by Savonarola to disprove the accusations that he was not a true Christian, nor a true prophet. This document begins with an extended discourse attempting to prove the ultimate and singular truth of Christian doctrine through the use of reason and logic. I will not delve too deeply into his arguments here, seeing as how the specifics are rather dry, but suffice it to say that Savonarola's intellectual ability was on full display here. Many authors have pointed out that his lines of argumentation hold up when placed under scrutiny, and even presage the empiricism and rationalism that characterized Enlightenment philosophy of later centuries. In this work, the Aristotelian and Neoplatonic philosophies which he studied as a younger man were deployed in defense of the Christian faith. Notably absent from the triumph of the cross, at least for the most parts, were the vivid descriptions of Savonarola's divinely gifted visions which played such a prominent role in many of his other works. Here, an image of the author emerges as a more sober and rational individual, one whose belief in Catholic doctrine was unshakable. As Savonarola's biographer, Pasquale Villari, wrote, even the Pope himself could not have written a more assured profession of the Christian faith. At the time that Savonarola was beginning to write this first treatise, Pope Alexander VII was struck by personal tragedy. On June 15th, his favored son, Giovanni Borgia, the Duke of Gandia, was found dead. The Duke had made many enemies in the city of Rome, and to this day the culprit has not been conclusively identified. One prime suspect is none other than Giovanni's own brother, Cesare, as at the time both men were vying for the affections of the same woman. The fact that Alexander VII had the investigation into Giovanni's death closed after only a week suggests that he had his own suspicions that the culprit was indeed a member of his close family. Whatever the case, the Pope was stricken by grief at the death of his son. Naturally, many of Savonarola's more ardent followers immediately interpreted this event as God's retribution on the Pope for his unjust excommunication of Savonarola. But the friar himself did not seem to believe this, or at least did not state this belief publicly. Instead, he wrote a letter to the Pope with the intention of comforting him. He exhorted the Pope to view this tragedy as an opportunity in which to strengthen his faith, He made references to St. Paul's second epistle to Timothy, "...therefore let your blessedness encourage the work of faith for all men, on account of which I labor unceasingly even to the point of imprisonment." By choosing this particular verse, Savonarola no doubt intended to gently remind the Pope of his current travails. Allegedly, the Pope not only read Savonarola's letter, but seems to have taken great comfort in it, even having it read aloud in the College of Cardinals. At this time, he expressed doubt regarding his decision to excommunicate Savonarola, declaring that he had perhaps acted too hastily. But if Savonarola and his followers had any hope that the Pope might rescind his order as a result of this letter, they were quickly disabused of it. Only a few days later, the open letters Savonarola had penned immediately following his execution finally reached Rome and were read by the Pope, who took great offense to them. Far from suspending his order, the Pope doubled down, declaring, quote, You'll proceed against him and against those disobedient and rebellious to the Holy Mother Church in every way permitted by the sacred canons, quote. Now, before ending this episode, I would first like to engage in a brief discussion about the other significant work produced by Savonarola during this time, his treatise on Florentine government. In said treatise, Savonarola laid out the basis of his ideal form of government, This treatise is premised on a rather bold claim, that is, that the Florentine people were uniquely adapted for a republican form of government. Quote, There can be no doubt, if one pays close attention to what I've said, that if the Florentine people were to tolerate the rule of a single monarch, this man would be a wise, just, and good prince, and not a tyrant. Once we examine the options and the ideas of erudite philosophers and theologians, however, we shall see that the Florentines, because of their nature, are not suited to this form of government. The rule of a prince, they argue, is fitting for a people who are servile by nature, lacking either in courage or intelligence or both. End quote. Savonarola goes on to defend his claim that a republican form of government is best suited for Florence, not only due to the resourceful, intelligent, and bold nature of the Florentine people, but also because the city had been ruled in this way for so long that republican institutions had become deeply rooted in Florentine life. Even when tyrants, unmistakably referring here to the Medici, attempted to impose their rule on the city, they, quote, did not attempt to wield their power in blatant ways. They have governed wisely, not forcing the Florentines to betray their nature or to give up their traditions, End quote. Savonarola concluded these opening passages by claiming that God himself was responsible for the governance and protection of Florence, quote, we can therefore conclude that because of the divine will from which the present civil government derives, and because of the reasons mentioned above, civil government is the best type of rule for Florence. A solitary rule, a monarchy, under a righteous ruler, is the best form of government, but it is not suited for the Florentine people." End quote. It is worth noting that while Savonarola uses the terms republic and civil government quite frequently, the idealized form of government... He devoted the rest of the work to explicating does not resemble a modern liberal democracy in any sense. Rather, Savonarola advocated for a sort of theocratic republicanism, a form of government in which political power was largely devolved into the hands of the people, but one in which the laws governing society were drawn from religious principles. Nevertheless, Savonarola's treatise on Florentine government is significant in that it presaged works of Renaissance philosophers by several years in much the same manner as The Triumph of the Cross had. Notably, this work preceded Niccolò Machiavelli's The Prince, considered to be the flagship work of political philosophy, by 15 whole years. Indeed, there is some evidence to suggest that Machiavelli had read and took inspiration from Savonarola's writing, but more on that later. And that is where I will end things for now. With the woes of war, pestilence, and famine, and political division dragging Florence ever closer to the brink of anarchy, it would seem that the city needed the leadership of Savonarola more acutely than ever. However, after having been excommunicated, the friar had been effectively silenced, removed from the political sphere. How would this ongoing crisis resolve itself, and what would become of Savonarola? He had predicted for some time now that this would end in one of two ways. Either he would be successful in his mission to reform the church, or he would die the death of a martyr. I'm sure you already know how this story ends, but you'll have to tune in again in two weeks to learn all the sordid details. In the meantime, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, etc., you can address them to me by email at historiadramaticpod at gmail.com. Alternatively, please feel free to reach out to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you've enjoyed the series thus far, please consider supporting the show financially, either through Patreon or through eBay. Also, consider leaving a review for the show on whichever podcast listening platform you prefer to use. In any event, this has been the Historia Dramatica podcast. Thank you for listening. I'm your host, Willem Connor, signing off.